there's one theme we cannot unsee anymore, it's racism. The tricky part, in my experience though, is understanding what that word even means in the 21st century. Personally, it's been pretty recent, all things considered, that I've even started to realize the extent to which I have faced racism in my life as a POC, both first and second hand. And if you ever find yourself being told that that kind of microanalysis that's needed to understand what discrimination is, is exaggerated and runs the risk of putting us in victim mode, be warned, chances are you're being severely gaslighted. Rewind that part and listen to it again if you need to. I need to make a statement here. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to racism. Laziness that has led to a global system of oppression, the worst side effect of which are people getting murdered by public servants simply on the basis of the color of their skin is not okay. And I finally think we're beginning to get it. That's the optimist in me. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. I met Tayo half a decade back when I invited myself as one of his first guests on his award-winning podcast, As Told by Nomads. I was a kindred spirithood from the very first moment on, and he's been an inspiration and a mentor of sorts ever since. Tayo Roxon is a writer, speaker, consultant, podcaster, and brand strategist who runs UID management. Basically, this is a guy who's dedicated his entire life's work to understanding what diversity and inclusion is. There's a bunch of stuff as usual on the episode notes. I highly recommend you read through and get to know. He's been a major part in my education against racism and my journey as a POC and understanding how best I contribute to society from my point of view by not enabling the system and standing up for what needs to be stood up for. And now, without much further ado, Tyro Roxon. Please accept my gratitude again for appearing on the show. And let me get straight to the question, which is bias, something you've been addressing intensely and very elaborately in the recent past. Okay, so, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. And uh, you're very, very kind. The honor is all mine, man. Nah, it's a, it's a true pleasure. I always like uh, talking to fellow, fellow TCKs. Cheers, brother. Cheers. The way I see bias is very, very simple. It's simply what informs the way we see the world. You know, it can be positive, it can be negative. There isn't one connotation when I say the word. And, you know, when you think about our ancestors and you think about how we survived, it was because of certain ways that uh, our brain was protected. And so that's what bias is. A bias is a way that our brain thinks it should be protected. And in the past, you know, the idea of stepping in front of a wild animal was something that was learned and, and eventually passed on. And so our brain feels like it should be protected based on the information we give it. And that information comes from four sources, right? And those, those sources are a story, so a narrative that you might have been told this is where religion comes into play. This is where stories you were told as a, as a kid from someone in your sphere of influence about a certain group of people. Uh, or this is where something that you picked up from TV or media or book or any of that. Another source is, is fear. A lot of times consistently experiencing something from a certain group of people or, or witnessing that from, from others can influence how you see others, a country or dynamic or um, you know, someone from another background. And uh, there's avoidance. Many times it's uncomfortable. If you're in an uncomfortable situation, you don't seek more information. And so you basically have a default to what is the information that might be out there. And, and that, that a lot of times can be bad information. And then there's security, maybe a way for you to feel better about yourself. And, and then and that's what bias is. And, and so during the George Floyd time, we referenced, I was looking at the world and, and it seemed like a lot of the world had an interesting and a lot of times unfortunate and incomplete view of what blackness is and, and mm. what black people uh, should be. You know, it was like a monolithic type of view. You know, black people should be this. If you're this, you're that. And I felt like that informed 
a lot of the unfairness that I was seeing around, especially, you know, with police brutality. And I just thought it was it was something that I, I could address as someone who is black, but also someone who is black and has, has been black throughout his life, but in different parts of the world. And, and uh, that was the perspective and, and emotion that I was was hoping to convey during those 30 days. That's one of the unique parts of your perspective. For our listeners, Tayo's not just black, he's also Nigerian and a third culture creed who grew up between... How many countries was it again? Five countries, five countries. Five countries and how many continents? Four continents, five countries, four continents. Right, and... So that's an entirely different league of a perspective. And you live in one of the world's most um, important cities as far as global matters are concerned, New York City. That's right, New York City. I hope I didn't interrupt you, though. No, no. You were spot on when you said that was how I uh, I felt like I needed to respond. Because during that time, when the death of George Floyd happened, it, this was after several things. Brianna, the, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, Sean Reed, and I was even thinking of uh, the, the death of Breonna Taylor. And there were just, mm-hmm. just so many incidents happening. And, and the problem that happens sometimes is, is when you are forced to be in a, a confined environment and, you know, you don't really have anywhere to go. You have nothing but your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And so I think collectively, yeah, I think collectively the world uh, was experiencing a, a response that that couldn't be ignored. And also a lot of people were being triggered. I was triggered. I was, you know, constantly seeing myself, my brothers, my family, in all these folks, but I was also rem- remembering moments in myself, of uh, myself, uh, in my childhood, when I had played small to, you know, to to appease an audience, or I had suppressed my anger not to appear too much, and so I was just releasing, and that, you know, as angry as I felt, it also felt good to actually release. Yeah, it's um, one of the things I respected and was in awe of uh, in with regard to your reaction was how articulate and focused you seemed to be in processing and sharing your thoughts publicly. Um, in fact, a friend of mine uh, from Berlin, by the way, who's African-German, wrote to me. She said one of her struggles was the intensity and range of emotions that come up in her heart when the when racism comes up is just so intense that it chokes her like emotionally she's at a loss for finding the right words to express what's going on inside so um how has your journey been in being that able and being that articulate how how did you get there well it wasn't easy the first time i felt different was I, it was me being 10. I was a 10-year-old kid. I was this you know, skinny Nigerian kid with a thick Nigerian accent in a French-speaking country in an American international school going through puberty. And we had just transitioned out of military role in Nigeria. And my dad's job as a diplomat, so I had to take us to different parts of the world. So I was now in Burkina Faso, but I was also in, a, in an international school. And this meant that I was amongst folks from different backgrounds. And, and part of, you know, being colonized and being in the colonized mindset is you think standard of beauty or, or things that are European or, or white are just better. That's mm. just what I felt as a 10 year old kid. So when I was in this environment, I, I started feeling very inferior. I had a huge inferior inferiority complex. And I, I would, you know, when people couldn't pronounce my first name, I would just tell them, hey, just, you know, just go, go with my last name, Roxanne. I was ashamed of my food. I, I, I wanted to look lighter and I, I didn't like my hair. And I was, there were just so many things that I was dealing with, but I didn't even know where they came from. And my parents didn't know what to do because they, in their head, they're like, whoa, I, I can't. I don't know how to help him. But I just hope he knows that we don't think that way about him. But as I, as I, as I uh, continued to find myself, you know, I spent four and a half years there in Burkina Faso. I gradually started to see that depending on you know the situation people saw me differently but it wasn't until i came back to nigeria that i I started to see the the harm of this so i came back to nigeria in high school i went to boarding school Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden i witnessed this elevation of of myself on a pedestal but it also led to separation people started to treat me like 
I was American. And because of that, I was getting respect. But at the same time, I was also being left out of conversations that I wanted to be in, involved in, because I'm Nigerian. And so people would be whispering, uh, you know, about the country around me and, uh, and thinking that I don't know who the governor of my state is or any of these things. Wow. Uh, but, you know, but it was like, because, oh, your accent is different, you're this is that. But then there was also that elevation where they're like, oh, yeah, because you're American, we've got to respect him. And I was like, but I'm just like you. And they said, no, 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 no. I mean, you, you're, you're, you, you talk different, you sound different, you look different. And I thought that that was, again, a colonial mindset where we, we've somehow conditioned ourselves, a lot of us, to think that anything that comes outside of our continent is better. And so the way we sound and, and the way we, we, we look is now even taken in, into our mindset. And then I came, I moved to the United States and people didn't believe I came from Nigeria because they had a one note view of that. So throughout all these journeys, yeah, all these experiences, I started to understand that for me, growing up the way that I was, if I didn't want to get frustrated by not being considered black enough or whatever enough, Nigerian enough or this enough, I needed to learn how to accept and embrace that my identity involved multiple layers and many things at the same time. And also that my experience was just different than a lot of people that I would come across. Mm -hmm. I needed to learn how to see that as a gift instead of a, a frustration, because the more that I saw it as, as something to, uh, of a burden, the more power I gave others and the more I, I shrunk. And naturally, you've seen me on, on, on social media. My natural personality is to be uh, goofy, big, or just be random. <laughs> and so hmm. for someone like me, uh, me suppressing that part of me is already suppressing the big part of myself. And, and so that's what, how I came to that journey. I want to be as goofy as you, by the way. I wish I was brave enough. I'm just, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just, you know, on the side. My, my mom doesn't, <laughs> she thinks sometimes like, oh, Tyra, maybe you shouldn't show too much. But, you know, it's got its good and, good and bad side. I mean, but I, again, to answer your question, it was just a survival instant. I realized that the world saw people that came from uh, countries in Africa a different way. And I was, I was starting to be seen as this exceptional guy and i was like hey i'm not different from any other person just because you didn't do the work to know that nigerians can look a different way black people can look a different way so or true. anybody can look a different way doesn't mean that i you get to just put me in some weird <laughs> pedestal and not get to see my 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 fellow folks so that i started becoming a voice for that uh because for many of us we we needed to unlearn i needed to unlearn things that i put on a pedestal myself and I needed to be vocal about things that people weren't confident being vocal about. So I was playing two roles there. To run through some of the stuff you said, the part you said about your experiences when you went back to Nigeria, that's something I can really intimately relate to. I've said to this to some of my friends. I think the worst forms of white supremacy uh, mentality I've faced and still face is probably in a non-white country, which is India, my ancestral country. It's Yeah. Um, I mean, it's that's a whole different kind of worm. There's actually something I want to uh, address too. Um, you, you, you said part of the reason, if if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, the first time you actually realized that you were being treated differently was in Nigeria. Did I get that part right? Well, I was in Burkina Faso. That was the, that was that me being um, this Nigerian kid right, with a thick Nigerian accent. My bad, my bad. Well, yeah, but I also witnessed. No, it's okay. No, but I also witnessed that coming back home. And I was uncomfortable with that because I knew that they were, I was being treated differently because of what you said, white supremacy. Seen, I, because I had gone out, I was exposed, I had a different accent, I sounded this. All of a sudden, it's like, well, this, this person is cooler than us. And wow. I didn't like that because... Because basically you're reminding them of a white person. Yeah. So. Or, or, or someone that's not them. And I wanted people to know, no, it is cool to be... You know, yeah, Nigerian, because I just come from a space where I was starting, I was ashamed, I guess, is the word. And then coming back home as I was trying to learn myself as a teenager, I said, like, oh, yes, I get to be, you know, I get to learn more about my country and my heritage. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You teach us more about the other side. <laughs> and I'm like, what about, <laughs> what about my identity? 
when you went to the U.S. later on, you said uh, you felt like uh, you were being boxed into a certain image of how you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. What, what did you think this box looked like? You know, it looked like someone that talked in cliques and lived in huts. So, because hmm. those were the questions people asked me. <laughs> you know, uh, like, hey, hey, you you look, uh, you sure you're Nigerian? You, you look, I thought you'd be blacker. Uh, and your your English it's uh, it's too good and 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 wow I've never heard people talk the way you talk you have gyms there you have cars you know it was a very primitive view wow. of of what they 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 thought and you know I'm sure it's what they were exposed to but it's part of the problem uh, so I, I found myself educating many people and those first experiences in the U.S. I know this is like a, a bit of a blanket question but. How did those really make you feel, like emotionally? Was it anger? Was it embarrassment? Or was it um, just surprise, shock? This is the part I'm most interested in. When I came to the United States, I made I, I made a deal with myself. I was 17, and I said I will no longer be trying to serve others at the expense of myself. Wow, at 17, that that's that's very admirable, man. Well, think about it. If you're in a Boarding school, it's very, <laughs> you know, you're there most of the time. So I was there for 10th to 12th grade, and I'm very, uh, you know, very, very mission-driven. And I, I felt like I was always fighting against myself and others, improving others, because people were always trying to test me to see if I was really who I said I was. And I said, if I'm going to get another opportunity to, to go to a new audience, I need to be intentional because I know what it's like for people to just try to put you in boxes. And, and that one of, those, one of the first ways to do that was actually taking back my name. Throughout from middle school, I, I, I used to go by Roxon, and I love my last name, but it's not my first name. And I, the reason I went by Roxon is because people had a hard time pronouncing it in, in the American International School. The, you know, Tayo is short for Akintayo. And I was like, ah, you, know, you know what, just call me Roxon. And so it stuck, and when I, Came, back, came to America, I said, you know, we're, we're going to go with Tile. You know, we're going with Tile. That's, that's what it is. You're going to learn how to call me Tile. And, and that gave me a sense of pride. And then just that contract with myself made it a, uh, an intentional experience for me. And like I said, I'm mission-driven, and, I, and I've been inspired by my biggest inspirations, you know, are the late Nelson Mandela and Oprah Winfrey. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this work comes with self-awareness. The reason I, I, was, I was always attracted to Mandela was the idea that he fought for freedom despite it not being the popular thing. And he spoke despite it not being the popular thing. And for me, I could relate to that because I grew up in, initially in a dictatorship. Wow. And then I also felt you know, multiple times the uncomfortable feeling of being suppressed and, and being the oldest of three boys. I didn't want my, my, youngest, my youngest brothers to, to go through the same way. So... I took it upon myself, you know, I, I'm, I've always loved superheroes. I said, yeah, I'm going to, this is like my Superman story. <laughs> so that, oh that's God. what I, uh, that's why I did it. Uh, that's badass. Yeah. That's badass. This is, this is a great time to ask you this question. There's a demographic out there, primarily white demographic, who seem to be very comfortable in this paradigm of, hey, we, we're doing this whole rescue mission for Africa. Now, as someone who's actually spent his initial years in a dictatorship, and seen it over being overthrown, and then spent his life getting the other side of the story. What do you have to say to them? So you know, someone who's who's trying to you know this whole we're gonna save Africa thing. Mm, yeah, because <laughs> uh, they think um, you know to be a little more elaborate. There is this. Let's just say there's a very specific demographic of white people who think seem still seem to think Africa's that mission. They've taken upon themselves to save. You know, saving Africa is their mission to take on in life. And they're still and that they're still doing yeah. them a favor. So what do you have to, to say to them? I, you know, that's called the white savior. So I, I, I will have them reflect on why they feel like Thank you for that. White savior. I'm gonna remember that one. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah it's the white savior complex. No, it's that often comes from a place of virtue signaling or performative allyship. People trying to show that you are good in a good way and, and then, you know, proving it to others. And I will encourage people to, to really understand why and investigate what about 
the continent of Africa they wanted to save. Because that usually comes from a place of, we need to make them like us. A lot of even missionaries back in the day when they came to, to, to the continent of Africa, like if we turn them to Christian or we make them this, we're saving them from themselves. That's the one, saving them from themselves. I mean, that enrages me to no end. If that's where your thought is coming from, you think you're saving them from yourself. I want people, I always tell people to reflect on, on that because that's a very dehumanizing thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't look like that when, they're, when people are saying that, by the way. They, I mean, it's obviously well-intentioned for the most part. If someone is saying that, I just, I just want to help. I want to do that. But if you, if you go there and you're like, no, I don't want to hear any other side. This is the side that is, that, that is the only, that is the truth. I want to take a picture and, to, and show myself hugging all these folks and me doing something. Then I, I always tell people, look, I don't think you, you know, I don't think you're doing this for the right reasons. And I also don't think you're thinking about this from a, a nuanced point of view, because if this was the other way around and someone came to you and said, hey, let's, you know, I, I see the way you do things, but I think my way is better. You would not react well to that. And that comes from a specific privilege point of view. And so apply that same lens to the people that you are, quote unquote, trying to save. And it's always a conversation because it does come from, again, bias and unlearning things. And people, many of us, we grow up in a very conditioned mindset. We, we're not intentional. What I mean by that is most of us don't know why we think the way we think and how we think the way we think and where those thoughts came from. So true. We just do things because of, hey, you know, that's the way it is or that's the way I've always known. And when you do like, when you grow up like that, you just find yourself adopting, you know, certainly good habits, but a lot of bad habits as well. And that, that's, what, that's what that comes from. So true, brother. Damn, you nailed that one. Thank you. Thank you. What are the right reasons? I, I hope that anyone trying to, to work with people from other group, you know, are trying to ensure that people feel the full spectrum of their humanity. So uh, what I mean by that is that they don't feel less than for who they are. If you're coming to another country and you want to interact, making them know that what they do and how they do things is not less than is very important. If you go to another place and say, well, that's not professional. Mm. Uh, you should dress this way or your hair looks weird. All those things. Even if you think you're trying to, I guess, civilize people, oh God, <laughs> which is yeah. some term that people would use. Yeah. What I always tell people to do is just reflect on what you consider the standards and the norm. What, what, what do you consider beautiful? What do you consider professional? What do you consider okay? What do you consider a, a suitable thing for you to do that? And if you really reflect on that, many times you're going to see that the way of life that you consider might not always be suitable for other people. Hair is a great example of that. We have different types of hair, many of us are from different culture. But a lot of times, mm -hmm. I, this is something I had to learn, by the way. In, in boarding school, the only considered hairstyle was, you know, a low cut or a nearly shaved haircut for men. And, and it's part of the same sort of thing where a lot of black folks grow up thinking their hair isn't mm -hmm. good, isn't beautiful, isn't the good hair. You know, that they have to straighten it or you can't embrace the curls. And when you, you get into many white spaces, you, you're, you're said, oh, that's unprofessional. Cut it. Don't. Don't grow dreads. Don't go this. Don't cut it this way. That's something so small, but so, I mean, it's not, sorry, not small. It seems small to some people, mm -hmm. but it's a big part of identity. Hair is everything to many black folks. To me, it is. So to, to many black women, it is. But when you take away something like that, whether it's in your school, <laughs> you know, if it's a missionary school, for example, don't, cut it, don't bring that. Or if it's in your institution, that simple thing, taking away that expression of identity goes a long way into how people see themselves. So that, that's an example of what I'm saying. Investigate what your, your standards are. Is it based on one type of people or is it inclusive? So good, man. Do you think Africa needs help? Yeah, I, I, think, there, there, I think there are parts of... I think, of course, I think, uh, yeah. But, but I don't think it needs help the way people think it is. I think a lot of us, when I, when I talk to many Africans in diaspora, I don't think it needs help in the same way, same way people think it is. I think it needs help remembering how powerful yes. it is. And, and, and the fact that the world came from that yes. and that, that, that a lot of, you know, when you think about the divide and conquer, you know, what are you thinking about tribalism or any of the things that happened? Mm -hmm. That's a colonial mindset where people carved out the continent and made countries out of neighbors that shouldn't have been countries because of, yeah, I want to get this natural resource or all these things. And many times amongst ourselves, whether, you know, we're, we're trying to advance, we feel like there's a crabs in the barrel mentality. 
and we forget that we are actually great together. And, and, and so there's that. But when I, when I also say reminding of ourselves of our greatness, I think we're more sufficient than we give ourselves credit for. We just have to understand that it's okay to disagree, one, but it's okay to embrace the diversity that we come from and, and understand that we are, are beautiful folks. Uh, that said, I, there's certainly a lot of advancement that doesn't get reported, but um, I think a lot of it has to do with the men mentality as well. So I think mm -hmm. there's room for improvement, but I, I think that's going to come when we start to embrace our, our power and identity and the fact that we're, there's beauty in, in, in the variety that we display and it doesn't have to be such a negative thing. That sounds beautiful, man. Very, very intricately put together. I sometimes compare it to the, an analogy of a cocky 20-year-old running up to, I don't know, a 95-year-old granddad and saying, hey, do you need help? But, uh, but yeah, sure. But in that case, you know, why, why, so, why, why, do you, why can't you just be more like me? Like, Hang on a minute, you know. There's a, there's a timeline that needs to be respected and a series huh. of events before you go around telling... And I, you know, it, it is a very abstract analogy, and I'm not sure it even uh, fits, but it's, it's the way I've seen. It. No, I get it. I get it. So, uh, well, because yeah, a lot of the these nation states, which you come across as the most powerful in a in a certain paradigm, are new. They are way newer than in comparison to uh, um, geographical regions like Africa, you know, continent, um, and people forget that just trying to push that entire uh, paradigm into some kind of a template we think is appropriate or is the definition of civilization is just it's crazy how oblivious people still seem to be how n nonsensical that is yeah it is it is and I, you know, I, I, that's why I fight for what I, I, I like to fight for equality and equity. And it's the reason I, I speak, you, you know, you were wondering where the source comes from. Mm -hmm. And for me, days where I might not want to talk or anything, that's what I think about you. The, the little kid that probably feels like he, she, they don't matter because of what the world is telling them. Uh, and maybe there's no representation of what that person looks like. And I know that I, I'm, you know, for better or worse, I'm a representation to, to someone. <laughs> uh, uh, that could be good or bad. And so I don't take that responsibility lightly. Yeah, right. Well, it's super inspiring stuff, as I keep saying. I have a dilemma. So here's what's been going on with Black, since the Black Lives Matter this year started. In the beginning, well, it was just a lot of rage. And I'm not sure if you heard this, but second largest number of BLM protests outside the U.S. happened in Germany this year. Hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, e even though Germany as a nation state actually has a pretty, well, let's say modern constitution in comparison to a lot of others, the, um, the actual implementation in daily life is leaves a lot to be desired. So there was the European version of the Black Lives Matter movement, which was more a movement against, which finally kind of empowered people of color here to speak out against passive racism and the constant microaggressions they've been putting through. And, of course, the more explicit cases, which, to be fair, are probably a lot less in number in comparison to one, uh, you know, a country like the US or even the UK. Somewhere along the line, uh, I noticed that, well, I'm, I'm German of Indian ancestry. And generally speaking, in Germany, it's always been people of color who've stuck together as one community. Even though it's starting to change now that Germany is an officially uh, official immigrant country, what's been strange in my, uh, you know, from my perspective since then is there have been some newer developments wherein I'm grappling for words today. There was division amidst people of color. All of a sudden, at some point anyway, in, in certain circles, it wasn't about yeah. you know let's stand yeah. together as people of color. And embarrassingly enough, for me, it was shocking to see how a lot of South Asians seem to side more with the more f fragile point of view of, okay, this thing's gone too far enough and this is, this is a, an exaggerated reaction to the way things are, even including members of my family, unfortunately. Um, and it was complete cognitive dissonance for me. I could not understand that. Because most of my life, I've always identified as colored. And anyone who's colored, I've kind of 
identified as an, uh, as someone who's been through experiences similar to mine as far as discrimination is concerned. And all of a sudden, amidst the discriminated, there was division. It's more of, okay, I've been discriminated more against. Or, uh, yeah, you haven't really been discriminated against anyway. You're just, you know, uh, whining for no reason. Any thoughts on this? You, you know, this goes to the earlier question you were, you were, you were talking about. Because when, when, when we talk about help, I don't, I don't mean help in a traditional sense. There, this divide and conquer... Is, is one of the most detrimental things to any any people of color group. I've seen it, you know, amongst ourselves, whether it's, you know, Asians versus black folks, black folks versus Asians, uh, Latinx versus... Have you seen this? Oh, Please tell yeah. me more, because I, I haven't really seen it that, that oh. one. Tell us more about this. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're a huge... I, 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 I see it sometimes, even when with the China narrative, I, I remember initially when the coronavirus hit, a lot of Asians uh, were experiencing some r racist sentiment uh, and yeah. here. And then I, I, as it started to calm down, I was looking at the, 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 the media and the news and, it, and it, was, it was vice versa in China, where a lot of black folks in China were now experiencing racist um, policies and being sent home. But here in America, during the, I don't know, years ago, uh, there was this thing called the model minority myth and people would cause they would a lot of usually came from white folks where they would compare uh, in order to cause division they would they'll tell uh, a lot of black folks and people that hey why don't you just be like the model minority which is uh you know in like uh, asian you know japanese chinese where you know very quiet and obviously this isn't true it's a stereotype and they they, mm -hmm. they go to school and they're not expressive they're not they're not allowed and, and, and all these and that's how to be a minority here and, and then it became this story that oftentimes you you attach to to Asians you're like yeah look at you know always quite very expressive you know they don't show a lot of emotions and it, it was almost like this thing where just shut up and and know your place yeah but at the same time it was propping people up against each other and a lot of people bought into that narrative where look 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 just go to school, be a lawyer, doctor, engineer, doctor, and don't do anything else. And, and, and it became this, this, this dangerous sort of thing. And to me, the way I've come to understand it is that many times there's a feeling of threat that is, is seen as a, a threat to access, a threat to opportunity, a crab in the, in the barrel mentality. And we think that we're our own worst enemies. And it's because we don't do the work to see each other. We believe that the worst stories about what has been told to us you know, the Asians want to kill us, black folks want to kill us, or black people from Africa want to kill us, or Caribbeans are not the same as this. And when we buy into those uh, narratives, the people that start those narratives are the ones that wanted to colonize us in the first place. Mm -hmm. And and that's what we, 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 we forget. And it's the most disappointing thing to me because I feel like it halts the movement and it it. it it almost gives the other side a chance to to laugh at us and say, "Hey, look, yeah, I thought you wanted to fight uh, oppression, but well, look at you—you you can't even agree amongst yourself. You're always coming for each other." And I've noticed something. All right. Yeah, yeah. And I've we noticed keep, <laughs> we keep we keep falling for that again. Oh, I know. Over and over I, know. Again. I, I noticed something in America where there are two parties. I many people know the Democratic and the Republican, and I I feel like I heard this from somewhere, so I I wish I knew so I could give proper credit. But someone said the the Republican Party is the party of people that don't apologize, essentially. And they, the more you, the more unapologetic you are, the more you're, yeah, good, good for you. And then the Democratic Party is is this party that is seeking perfection. And so they are looking for all the faults in you, and because of that, you can't. Even, there's no uni unity. And, and, and so uh. you're getting, I'm gonna cancel you. Oh, you you don't have this right. Well, you did this, and that's the end of that. And then and, and when we do that and there's there's no unity, we're not even embracing the fact that one okay one can make mistakes one, but the fact that hey just because you did it that way doesn't mean another person doesn't do it that that way. So we almost hurt our own cause, and I see that amongst um, the infighting that happens sometimes. And it, it, to me, it all comes, goes back to the I idea of understanding that the bigger picture is dismantling systems of oppression and white supremacy. And too many times we participate um, many groups participate in this thing I call oppression Olympics. My pain is worse than your pain. And so if you bring this up, you're mm -hmm. taking away from my, taking away attention from my pain. 
And I'm like, well, why can't we just, you know, understand that this is, let's talk about it. This is all for the same exactly. cause. Yeah. And exactly. I don't want to invalidate yours. Please don't invalidate mine. But let's stay focused. Uh, but yeah, I just think it's a colonial mindset. Uh, but um, we have many bad agents, though, in, amongst ourselves who perpetuate certain stories. <laughs> You know, I I watched the uh, and I'll pass this on to you. I know I'm talking a lot, but Asan Asan Minaj. No, 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 no. You're not talking enough, man. I'm 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 all ears. This is this is <laughs> okay. These are gold nuggets, seriously. Though, ah, yeah. thank you. You know, Asan Minaj, one of my favorite comedians, is, is of Indian descent, and um, oh, yeah, he brought this up in, a, in an interesting way, and I really appreciated it. He he was saying he was talking about the silence from many South Asian comedians. Uh, yeah, and his his response was. Don't act like you're not complicit. You're the same wants to say, don't bring this guy home to marry my daughter. Yeah. You 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 have business in place, but you consume the culture, but you don't say anything. You talk amongst your friends to say that they're bad and all this. You talk like other people. So don't act like this is just an issue. I bring that to say there are many people in different communities. He went in Nigeria. I remember, you know, when coming home, people, I, I was being told, don't be like these these type of, of of black people. Be like this. And, oh yeah, yeah right. Yeah. I remember being told, giving similar advice myself. Yeah, actually. yeah. <laughs> and I, I, yeah. it starts from those conversations. That's why I always tell many many immigrant families or people of people of color. All of us. If you're saying stuff like that, you can't bring someone here, or you can only consume them there. What do you think is going to happen when people grow up? You, you think that. Because you had the black friend or the Indian friend or the Chinese friend, it's just going to be people are going to understand that you're not racist or you're not uh, detrimental to your 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 cause. No, people know, model right? behavior. God, yeah. So uh, it, 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 we need to reflect on what we accept. <laughs> the alibi social circle. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Damn. Yeah. Um. So. For people, for those of us who are struggling to come out of that shell of family and friends who are adding and contributing to this cycle of toxicity, what's your advice? Because I've been there. Yeah. I feel like in hindsight, my journey would have been way easier if I'd had the right friends. If I'd had, you know, one friend like you back in the day would have helped accelerated the process by three times, to say the least. um, Yeah. For those of us in that position, what are your words of advice? I think we need to start practicing moral courage and be able to call call in, not even just call out. Sometimes we, we need, of course, we need to call out, but call in the people that are closest to us who participate in that and tell our stories of how we got to where we got to. I think some of the, the story, the most powerful stories come from when we say, hey, you know, I used to think this, actually. <laughs> mm. This is what I, need, I needed to come through. When I was exposed to this, I started to, to uh, see the world differently. And there's an equation that I want people to remember. Lived experiences plus exposure equals worldview. Your worldview is shaped by your lived experiences and your exposure levels. So when you want to be able to find a way to break a cycle of, of, of oppressive type of thinking, there needs to be some bravery that comes with telling your story with that particular thing you're trying to break. Whether it's how you, you saw LGBTQI issues. We come from countries that are very anti LGBTQI. And for me, that, that was one of the first things I, I started to talk about um, uh, because it was not just, it wasn't talked about growing up for me. And so I, for me, my first exposure to it was when I first came to America. And I, I remember just thinking to myself, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, whenever, wow. whenever it was talked about it, it was, it was like, that's a, that's a sin. Don't do it. You know, just like in a very, you know, punitive type of way. And as I started to have friends, I was like, I don't know if I agree with this mom, dad, or anyone, you know, you know, I had to find that moment of saying, what are you going to do about this title? Because this is going to come up. Mm. <laughs> and are you going to do the silent thing because it's easier? Or are you going to say something? And so whenever you hear comments that are not inviting of other groups, call it out then. Whenever you are using your platform, talk about it, your journey through that. And I, I know that when I talk about my journey through many things, many people find their courage in, in that and say, oh, I thought it was just me. And so... That's how we have to start doing that. Simultaneously telling those stories, seeking to get, acquire new stories, um, and, 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 and learning uh, to keep each other accountable. And so I'll end with this. I used an, an acronym during my talk bias uh, challenge. I said it's talk. So talk is tell yourself the truth. You know how you feel about certain 
groups and, and that's a good um, instinct to start figuring out how to unlearn certain things acquire new stories one of the best ways to humanize people you don't understand is to acquire new stories and that involves exposing yourself reading a bunch of things and then learn how to keep each other accountable you got to be held accountable and you got to hold other people accountable to make sure that we don't fall into bad habits and keep pushing through because it's going to be uncomfortable. Beautiful. And 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 the more uncomfortable you are, the better it is, <laughs> honestly, for for growth and exposure. But it's just going to be uncomfortable. You don't. You might be the only one saying something. You might experience a lot of hate speech from your group, uh, group that you thought loved you. Yeah. But so true. Don't lose that defensive values. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Um. Yeah. That's definitely a section of this podcast. I'm gonna rewind and listen back to again. And I. Highly recommend my listeners do the same. Well, the way I've, I've definitely lost a large chunk of uh, I'm doing code marks, code marks here, friends in the recent past in a lot of the recent events. Um, but then again, I'm all the, the only regret I have is that I took that long to figure out who my real friends are. If that makes any sense? If, if regret is even the right word to use here. But you know, you can use that to to as fuel. Exactly. It's also been interesting. Some of the most unassuming people have come to my side in support of uh, these issues as well. Um, but before I get into that, I'd love for you to give us your take on those of us who are saying, okay, why is being silent being complicit at this point? Why do I have to say something? A lot of times if we don't say something, we don't save lives. And I mean this by we don't actually allow other people to see us. You remember how you said the TCK, you coming on the podcast helped you embrace part of the, the TCK journey. It's the same thing for me. I, I saw someone else tell the story mm. and I finally started to shed some of my, my harmful thoughts about myself. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> people are watching. <laughs> and so when we don't uh, tell uh, stories, we don't give other people a chance to be participants in our story, but we also don't uh, understand that people are watching us. And if people watch us be silent, they're just going to think that it's okay to be silent. And whenever that thing comes up again, they're gonna act the same way we do. Think about 9-11. When 9-11, for me, that's the biggest way that I've seen stories to change about people, a group of people that I knew. I, I, you know, I grew up a Christian, but Nigeria is a largely Muslim country as well. Mm-hmm. It's almost 50-50 Christian and, and Islam. But I you know, I was in school when 9-11 I was in middle school. And then I saw the world change <laughs> for, 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 I saw Islamophobia like I've never seen before. And a lot of countries that had a lot of predominant, predominantly Muslim nations became targets. And mm-hmm. it became something that was in the news and the stories and the, and the TV shows and everything. And I saw how that narrative was fed because there needed to be a, a bad person. And everybody started to see, not everybody, a lot of people started to see that. Uh, and so if we don't tell stories, we don't get a chance to infiltrate the dumb, the, the sometimes false narratives about a culture that is told by people from another culture <laughs> that, that, I haven't, I have no experience with that. Uh, we don't get to see the intersections. The fact that, that uh, being Indian, for example, could mean multiple things. It's not just what you, t- the stereotype is. Being mm-hmm. black is multiple things. And, and it, it's okay to be this and that. And, and I think it's very important uh, that, to understand that because many times we are the best uh, messengers of our stories, but our silence allows other people that have no interaction, not enough interaction with our stories to be the, the messengers. And what happens is we get a watered down version or an incorrect version. So true, man. I think the part which really hit me right now is when you say you're not giving people the chance. That's so true. I realized only after I started speaking up that there were people out there in my friend circle or just generally people out there, audiences, who were waiting for a chance to come support me and join me or just, you know, not me, but join, be, be an ally in this entire movement. And they they probably wouldn't never have done that if I hadn't actually taken that step to speak out. Right. Inversely, I had a lot of so-called friends I really liked who were basically, um, um, well, with all due respect, just, um, you know, imposters, really. 
they, you know, I, I thought they were friends. And, uh, you know, there's this whole new thing about, okay, is left the new right? Because there's a large demographic out there who seems to think, okay, if my views are, are considered racist, I still have the right to express these views because that's, you know, that's my constitutional right, which I found a very uh, questionable concept, personally, because <laughs> uh, that's like saying, I'm going to smoke my cigarette and blow the smoke into your face because it's my constitutional right to do so. Yeah. That, that's another topic I could go off on. Um, you, you're so right regarding, um, you know, giving people the chance by speaking up and thanks again thanks for that one and oh thank you and but it's also good for us by the way it's you know there's a power in that the, the bond that you and i have is because of a, of a narrative tck narrative and us telling that story and we don't you know we, we we come from different cultures but we also share that as well so true yeah a lot of times unfortunately for better or worse the the, the, the dominant narrative isn't usually about people that look like us or come from our experiences you know, even from the countries we come from, our passport countries. Yeah. And so yeah. telling that story normalizes all those things. So, yeah. So true. It's it's crazy. Uh, on the side note, we've never actually met 3D, Jeff, uh, just FYI. Yeah. Audiences. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it hardly feels like that anymore. I mean, we've talked about some, some super, uh, you know, intimate stories in our lives which uh, we probably uh, haven't shared with a lot of people I've met 3D multiple times. So, yeah, so that's uh, another very good example of um, the power of words and all true communication, I guess, authentic communication. I, I do want to uh, ask you again, though, bias. I think one of the things people struggle with the most is realizing the fact that everyone is biased. What would you suggest is the best way to come to terms with that? I think it's important to remind yourself that bias is a is a way for your brain to protect you. <laughs> uh, and when people think about it, it's again, I, I, I was saying, you know, back in the days, that's how we knew not to step in front of wild animals. So just think about bias as, as a way uh, that your brain protects you. But that means you need to feed your brain more information that's accurate because it's triggered during moments that you're tired, that you're stressed, that you don't really have a lot of time to to react. So, you know, don't just have a negative experience, uh, you know, relationship with bias, but understand though that your bias plays a big role into the systems you participate in and in how you see the world. And so knowing that, just knowing that, I hope inspires you to then say, then I need to do a better job of making sure I'm exposed to much more information than I'm used to because the information that I've been exposed to might be very limiting to other people. And if I start getting used to that, I could just be unconsciously doing negative things to other people and thinking it's normal. So just that knowledge is, is important. I, I don't want people to think of it as an overwhelming thing that it's, it's a destination. If I do this, my bias will go away. No, think of it as a lifelong journey. Exactly. All these things that I've, yeah, all these things we've been talking about, this is a, I, I continuously have to unlearn things. It's it, the cycle I always tell people is learn, unlearn, relearn, learn, unlearn, relearn, learn, unlearn, relearn. And that's just what the whole thing is. And um, many people get in trouble when they start thinking, oh, I thought it was, I thought racism ended a while ago, or oh, if I do this, will it, will it end? Uh, oh, well, why why are you bringing this up again? I thought I already did this or I already did that. And I'm like, then you don't understand the problem. It, it took centuries to, to create the systems that we have here. You think because of the action you did or you turn off the news or you haven't your Asian friend or your African friend or your, your uh, you know, Hispanic friend is solved. No, it's not an individual. It's an institution. Just because you're a good person doesn't mean you're, you're not participating in a bad system. That's something I, I tweeted earlier. And you could be the greatest person in the world, but you, you it's bigger than you. It's all the, the things that we consume, the system. So you need to make sure that that's where you're channeling your energy in there, not in the fact that you're, you're, you're not a racist. <laughs> so that, that's how people uh, see it. So, yeah. You hit the ball out of the park with that one, man. So well said. I'm so, I'm so happy to have had you said that. Um, that. Those blind spots, I've had this conversation with so many people, people who just Literally, they, 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 I mean, genuinely don't get it. They don't realize they're being racist just because they think they're not. You know, they think it's, it's like one conclusion you arrive at once in a lifetime and that's it, over and done with. 
Yeah. What do we do when we have loved ones who are racist? Ah, that's tough. I, I always tell people. I know. Yeah. Right? Just just to clarify, I'm super blessed. Like my my inner circle, I don't have any of this. But you know, semi inner. I mean, I definitely have people in my family who are racist and don't realize it. How do we deal with these situations? Because you know, you can't really ostracize them completely, but you don't want to enable something you really don't want to enable. So what do we do? Yeah. So I, I I find it's very helpful to to be very clear about your boundaries. And this it's always the toughest ones and. You know, say, hey, like, mom, dad, uncle, auntie, we've talked about this. I just want to make it clear, like, this, these are the things that are okay, and these are the things that are not okay to me. If we talk about this, I, this is how I'm going to react, and I know this is how you react, and I want us to establish this safe space where we are both respecting each other's values. And it's not always going to be met with just, oh, yes, I, I hear you. Mm. <laughs> uh and sometimes it might involve arguments or a series of arguments, but one thing that we cannot do is give in to anything that is racist. So if you two can't come to some sort of agreement where there will be respect, you might have to do the difficult thing. I, you know, it's <laughs> and, and 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 you know, love from afar. Yeah. Because it is possible to love from afar, but you know, it, mm. I, I always have people replace whoever they're they're, they're talking about with another group of people that they don't know and, and, and just take themselves from the situation. You wouldn't um, continue to allow someone to hurt someone you love if you knew that they were doing it on purpose and after you told them that it was hurting you. So you would, so but, but it's tough. Though. I understand. Obviously, these are people you grew up with, but just like they want the same thing for you to respect them, you deserve to 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 understand that there's certainly moments where you know giving in is is okay in terms of oh yeah mom always likes this but it never with racism racism is not just non-negotiable if it's like some mom's favorite food or this is i don't know some traditional thing that's going to help your mom feel better your dad feel better sure but if it's anything to do with racism or discrimination that that's you know that's different i mean we have moments where like oh that's just mom and she she's only going to eat this food and let's just give her what she wants or she's going to throw a tantrum. Exactly. That's very yeah. different from don't bring... That is very different. And the enraging part is when people just yeah. don't seem to get that. Is very di- this isn't a difference of opinion. Yeah. It's a little more than that. That's exactly... You said... Well, that's well said. It's not a difference of... This is not a difference of opinion here. You don't get the... <laughs> oh, that's just mom's opinion, you know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well said. Um, I want to respect your time uh, uh, and we've been talking for a while but I can't let you go before one last question I really want to pick your brain on which is your usage of social media which you've managed to turn into a very positive force without getting narcissistic in spite of the risks of that always taking place the way they do thank you I'd love to hear your thoughts on how people might go about doing that and also including how you've been dealing with the haters because i know you've been dealing with quite a few <laughs> uh one of the biggest things i learned from the late nelson mandela was big picture thinking i remember thinking to myself for a lot of my life that this man spent 27 years in jail and for a long time I, you know this is before i was 30 i was like oh this man has spent more time in jail than i've been alive and he was he's still able to see the bigger picture and even when it came out understanding what the bigger picture of was, was you know, not to start a race war and cite one and to try and find a way to bring people that might have hit each other together. And that to me has always been something that I, I, I put central and focus. So the big picture for me is to help people break down systems of oppression and, and, and get to experience multiple sides of the personalities. Even a big part of me being that goofy person that's dancing and all that, I know many people don't feel comfortable doing that. Because a lot of times people will see like, oh, I thought you were just in the suits and all that. But <laughs> I know that sometimes showing <laughs> What up, a weird thing to say that. I thought you were only into suits. Uh, so, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know <laughs> I'm always tempted to ask you who this guy can be or, uh, or, or you know, who, who this being <laughs> is. Who says something like that? I, you, you, <laughs> you know, it's funny. You say you say it that way. But when people are saying it, I, they're thinking, oh, I just, you, that's, I didn't expect that. Okay. So I, I, I started to realize with my use of social media, the more I gain influence that I shouldn't lose myself. I want people to know that the way to be successful isn't just one way. And it's okay to be corny. It's okay to be a bad dancer. It's okay to also share parts of your identity, but then also, you know, 
be emotional and, and, and talk about therapy and all those, you know, all these things that I, that I do on a daily basis. And then still people know, okay, that's still the guy that loves diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, um, that's how I use it just to try and show multiple aspects of myself. And with the haters, <laughs> I, I learned a, a long time ago, not to give people that don't deserve my energy, my energy. And that came from that boarding school, boarding school experience. You know, when I told you I made that contract myself, hmm. uh, it was a lot of fighting people about who I, who I was, you know, it's like, well, why can't you do this? Or why can't you do this? And I'm like, because it's not what I want. I mean, like, why, why do I need to do that? And I had a lot of practice with that growing up as a kid, trying to suppress myself. There are moments where I failed, you know, there are moments where I failed in recognizing and engaged in, 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 in talking with trolls but for the most part i you know i i notice when i I'm, I'm expending too much energy and i say ah this is not worth it this is not serving me let me move on from this so um it's just recognizing your boundaries uh, knowing your boundaries will save your life that's valuable information but in my experience though it's one thing to be keep that awareness of what you just said when you're in a state of expansion and just rest and peace and safe and quite another when you when you're in the thick of it, when you know s some random hater comes out of the blue when you least expect it. So that moment where you know when you where it hits you when you least expect it. Are there any SOS steps you would recommend or could help us out with? Oh, that's a good. I I found ways to ground myself uh, by breathing. Oh, good one. Yeah, I didn't even know that breathing could save you one's life because i you know i'm very fast <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and so for me just the idea of slowing down it, sometimes could be like oh gosh what am i doing but the moments where i just breathe and, and practice mindfulness meditation i've been doing that and um i go to therapy every week friday for me at 4 p.m uh it's it's very important because there are many things you will identify that i am not seeing my in myself even times mm. I think I'm doing something good, it would just be something that she would just ask me a question and I'm like, oh, was I trying? Oh, that's what I was trying to do. And so just that, that idea of committing to growth and not stagnating or plateauing, mm -hmm. but also slowing down and honoring that, uh, I think it has helped. Making sure that's not negotiable. Yes, the non-negotiable part because... Yeah. You know, many, many times as you get older, you're like, oh, I, I already, I don't need anything else. But no, mm. there's always room for growth. Yeah, thanks for that. The breathing's been a game changer for me too. It, it sounds banal almost, but it's it really is such a simple but so effective every single time shit comes out of, out of nowhere. And therapy, yeah, thanks for that. I just, I've, I've been slacking on the therapy of late. So yeah, that was probably a sign for the universe to make sure I uh, book a session ASAP again. <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> but, by the way, finding a good therapy is, is a lot of work too. It's not just... Very true, Yeah, very true. you say therapy doesn't mean that you join, you know, the first therapist that came there. It's like a... Really I know, right? Uh, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for adding that. Yeah, very yeah. true, very true. I took years, I took years. I put it off yeah. for years. Uh, and I now actually have two because uh, that's I found I found that to be the best balance. One for more long-term blueprint-oriented uh, strategies, and the other for the you know the smaller chunks of timelines. Beautiful, man. Um, we're almost <laughs> done. <laughs> I feel a little guilty because I know you're a really busy man. And you've been <laughs> giving me a lot of time, but I um, I do in tribute to your approach to have a bit of a mission statement for this podcast, which I don't always ask all my guests. Uh, I started off thinking I'm going to ask all my guests uh, the same question, but in some cases it just didn't it wasn't required or just didn't make any sense. In your case, though, it's definitely something I want to ask you. So uh, first half of my ancestral name is like an ode to a sacred fire wherein fear is burnt away. So my question to you is, if you could think of one aspect in our times and life or yours, which you would like to see burn away into the sacred fire, what would it be? One aspect of my life that I could see burn away into the fire. Ooh. Um, wow. It was... Maybe it's the idea that I wasn't enough. That's the thing that I struggled with the most growing up. Uh, I thought I needed to be someone else for a long, a large part of my life. Uh, and I was avoiding myself, uh, essentially. And, you know, I think these are things that a lot of us internalize, you know, as 
sometimes men of color and, and even TCKs, third culture kids. And um, I'm grateful for that because I was able to say it allows me to have context when I do what I do. Or I talk to other people. Uh, but, you know, if I could if I could, you know, talk to my little self, I just wish I could tell him that, hey, you know, it, it's, it's OK. You know, I know you, you're crying now, but you actually matter. <laughs> and I, I for a long time, I didn't think that I mattered. So uh, that's that's a big part of uh, something that, that I, I reflect on a lot. Oh, damn. So good, brother. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. That really resonated with me. I really feel that in my heart. Yeah, that that's beautiful. I think that's an aspect many of us want to throw into that fire. And uh, well, I'm definitely with you there at that fire. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, thanks for asking. Yeah, bro. This was uh, this was pretty much it. I'm I'm not at my articulate best today. I got it. <laughs> no, you do like a you are yeah. a conversationalist. That is the point. And this was a great conversation. And look, it's, we've been talking for over an hour. Thanks, brother. I, I got to say, I mean, in your case, I'm slightly intimidated. And I know you. that's the last thing you would want me to be. But I'm just like in deep respect of the work you do. And I mean, you've had like over 500 podcasts now. So uh, somewhere in my subconscious that that's been there the whole time. So uh, thank you for your uh, patience <laughs> it's okay. for all my screw ups. <laughs> No, nah, uh, I trust me. I understand. <laughs> yeah, I'm also super grateful for all the guests coming on at this point in the podcast because this will be what the sixth episode, I think, yours. Uh, so there's a lot of faith they've been showing and coming on and being willing to be part of this. I mean, having you speak on what you just did in, in this zeitgeist is um, it's something I really, really want to put out there, you know. And I'm very happy and very, very grateful for you having me given me the opportunity to do, do so. I'm grateful that you thought of me as someone to be on your show. So thank you so much. All right, man. All right. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love, talk soon. Just another voice out in.